Yeah, so here we are back again, and, you know, let's just kind of dive into maybe the the smaller types of uh, viruses uh, that can invade the body. Uh, sometimes it's harsh to call certain things a disease, but, uh, you know, sometimes that's the reason they exist. Well, one of them is um, GI. So... There's acid reflux, there's Barrett's esophagitis, there's what they call GERD, or gastrointestinal reflux disease. I'm sure many of you in your life um, has had some form of gastritis. Acid reflux is a more formalized uh, diagnosis. Prognosis is always very good. Um, but there's certain things that without medications, we don't know how or why it's hindering the body. You know, for example, um, when you are speaking to a generalized physician, maybe your primary care physician, you know, they're not, for the most part, they're not clinically trained to talk to you about your GI tract. Uh, there's things superficial that they can kind of identify, such as uh, acidity in the chest, Things that you know feel very uncomfortable to you if you eat past eight o'clock at night. Uh, whether you're shifting your weight um, or you're feeling like there is a sensation of not being able to swallow your food entirely, um, or you're having uh, an issue with your um, goiter and it feels enlarged. Uh, there's a lot of things that physically just by listening to you, they can assess uh, to a certain category of medicine. But gastroenterologists, what they really do beyond the physical assessment is they do surgery. Um, I, you know, generally don't call it surgery, but it depends on what your viewpoint is of it. And having an endoscopy something that is utilized as a line of sight to be able to see if there is a certain lineage of damage. Damage to tissue, damage to an internal organ, um, dam damage to superficial layers, and sometimes, because there is a tool attached to these scopes, um, they can take biopsies right then and there. They can, uh, I'm going to say carve out, they can slice, uh, but generally, there's a sharp instrument on the end, and if they need to either seal something or they need to open something up, there could be an abscess in that region that's causing some physical discomfort. Uh, there could be the more concern for ulcerations and having an ulcer in the you know, upper or lower GI tract is, is very problematic. But these medications, such as Nexium, Prevacid, uh, they call them PPI inhibitors. So proton pump inhibitors is, is what you would hear in a hospital. Um, and if you've ever gone to the hospital for severe stomach distress or severe heartburn and you think it's a heart attack and you find out it's not, that is of a general consensus, at least within that domain, that uh, you know that's generally what you had. Or anxiety. I'm just saying of the many factors it could be, that would be one of them in the profile. So you end up, you know, getting a $2,000 bill. Uh, if you add an ambulance charge to that, obviously it's more expensive. If you add any diagnostic testing to that, it's more expensive. Um, a lot of patients don't hit their deductible. Uh, some do, and that's fantastic, but others don't. Um, and that's all out of pocket money. So you also have, um, you know, a session in your life in that moment where you're increasing your anxiety uh, and you're putting your body through a physical manifestation of symptoms that you know you're not gonna feel for the next few days and it's gonna feel like you either have the flu or it's gonna feel like you can't really uh, move your body much you're gonna have physical aches and pains and and, and that's really you know the neurostimulus and, and how the nervous system and circulatory are connected uh, that's what I at least appreciate of medicine is that, you know, you feel one thing and 
all of a sudden your, your body goes into fight or flight mode to protect you uh, from an actual physical event that can harm you, um, but it doesn't do it without damage or without uh, causation. So cause and effect always follows that lineage and uh, you know, that's the truth there. So if you have this uh, you know feeling of onset doom and you feel like it's a heart attack, your body's gonna go into fight or flight mode to be able to protect you and stabilize you. Uh, at the cost of it, it's when they find out it's not a heart attack and they put you on a medication to stabilize you, you're gonna feel rested and calm. And then when you get home the next two days that you try to sleep, you're gonna to start to feel physical pain. That's because your body had to go into this next stage of stimulus in order to protect your body from a physical manifestation of pain uh, if it came and it comes at a cost. So the pharmaceutical market has done so much better in, in these areas of, of medicine. Um, things like GERD and gastritis don't get talked about as often as they should be in terms of you know how a simple you know, 10, 15 milligram medication taken daily uh, is appropriate for the body. Um, you know, it, you need your GI tract to be acidic. Uh, people think you need it base or neutral. That's not true. You always need acid in the, in the GI because you need positive flora. Um, you, need, you need negative bacteria to be able to counter the positive bacteria. You can't just have uh, you know, a, a base, a base set GI that that's not going to help you. And these medications, um, they coat the GI tract, but they also cause acidity, uh, and that's a good thing. So if you have an ulcer that's preformed or forming itself or current and active, um, you know you're not going to feel relief from that physically until you have this type of medication. And, and that's where you also get into holistic practices. Well, I'm sorry, there's nothing holistic that you can take that's gonna coat an ulcer. Uh, and that's where we get into just the truth of Western civilization um, and, and modern medicine as it is. I'll argue with anyone till they're blue in the face that no, if you have something that is physically upsetting uh, the stomach and it's a hole in the intestines, it's not just gonna close because you take apple cider vinegar. Uh, it's just not going to happen. So at that point in time, you need to reflect on what are you currently diagnosed with? What's a prognosis? Without getting emotional, what are the steps that I can take to put my body back into uh, you know, the proper position? So you take a Nexium, you take a Prevacid. Um, proton pump inhibitors are really great. What's not communicated so much, and I told you I'd talk about the negatives of pharmaceuticals, well, they're just running these scripts. They're not telling you because they're also cost-effective. You know, these aren't uh, you know $800 medications. These are very cost-effective, over-the-counter medications. Some are brought by prescription based on a larger dosage, based on a larger prescription itself, uh, to lower the cost for the patient and give more higher accessibility. So those are positives there. But you don't need to be on Nexium and Prevacid for more than three to four months in a year. And they don't always communicate that to the patient because there's always varying degrees of trauma. But you can create an ulcer by being on a proton pump inhibitor too long. So you have the double negative effect if you end up trying to focus on a double positive. The first positive is make sure that you don't have an ulcer. Make sure you don't have a hole in your intestines because that's what an ulcer is. The second positive is I should be on this medication. So if you're going for a double positive, you're gonna come up to a double negative. Double negative is, is your body doesn't need the medication for that extended period of time. The other negative is, is because you've been on an extended medication um, or a medication for an extended period of time, you're now overstimulating the GI tract. And now you're gonna cause acidity beyond what you need in, 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 acid, in an acid. So, you know, I'm not getting into the weeds here, but you don't want your GI tract too acidic. You need it acidic, you don't need it too acidic. So hopefully that, answers that but Nexid and Prevacid um, they're probably one of the most common written prescriptions in the United States uh, you know you you see or hear the profile on opiates completely different argument but opiates is you know opiates is milligrams comparable to the leaders of Prevacid and Nexium that get written out 
Uh, the side effects of Nexium and Prevacid are very low too, so it's a very positive medication to take. Um, but if you go on it for more than four months a year, it's just going to have uh, some nasty effects. And you won't know that until you have to get a scope again or you're in the hospital. So that ends my debate communication on the GI tract of medications. And there's obviously more, but those are the ones I focus on that people would know that are more common. Um, next profile I think I want to talk about is, you know, very hard to find diseases um, such as, um, well, rheumatoid arthritis is more, we have genetic tickers for that now. So rheumatoid arthritis, you know, an autoimmune disease, we can, we can find that information a lot quicker now than we used to. But uh, fibromyalgia is probably one of the hardest to diagnose uh, in a short period of time. And we're going to talk about the challenges of that. So, you know, here we are again today. And instead of questions that were being asked this time, I think I just want to put forward some thoughts and a very um, hypersensitive topic, and that's uh, the pharmaceutical market. And, uh, you know, first, what would make me want to announce my opinion on that? Uh, you know, there's a potential for a board seat on Merck, uh, and it's, it's very enticing to me uh, because I think that there is so much good that can come from the pharmaceutical market that gets uh, trickled down into the media. And it's not to say that their claims are false. It's nothing in that degree. There's been so much good that has come from the pharmaceutical market in the past even five years. And, and I kind of want to go through those opinions with you and, and maybe merit some facts and maybe show you the good and the bad, not just my side, uh, not just what I would believe, but uh, you know, not to be impartial. So, you know, I, I work out personally about four to five days a week. And when you're in the gym that frequently, what happens is you tend to see a varied age population. You tend to see people that um, are not of your uh, shape and size, not of your BMI index, uh, not even of your age. So you see anything from people who are more fit than yourself to people that uh, you know have certain chronic diseases that you can tell just with experience they're uh, trying to, I would say, cohabilitate with. Uh, you know, they live with themselves and they live with their chronic diseases. And you know, people who have those comorbidities know it's a challenge every day. Uh, you have those people on medications that have to be very cautious of you know a their activity in the morning or afternoon, but b also their diet and maintaining activity. You have people with uh, vascular risk. You have people that are on anabolic steroids that look very fit, but internal to their body, certain things are breaking down. Their liver is breaking down. Their um, kidneys are no longer producing urine. There's, there's a lot of things um, that you, know, you may or may not notice or you may or may not know, and, and that's completely fair. But for somebody clinically trained to my degree, I notice these things and I have first empathy. I speak to a few people that uh, you know have had MS, which is multiple sclerosis. It's, a, it's not just a, a very horrific type disease to live with, but this is generally a lifelong term. Um, this is also something debilitating, which means over a period of years, it breaks down the body in both a physical uh, anatomical position, but also um, mental and emotional. Mental side, neurology, so your, your neurostimulus is different. Uh, your ability of cognitive function is different. Um, your responses could be delayed. You could have slurred speech, fog memory. You can have a lapse in judgment. Cognitive speaks on your ability to understand whether or not this is a, a positive or a negative reaction. Um, and if it's something that your, your body actually understands you're making a decision about. Uh, we see this a lot with schizophrenic people. We see this a lot with uh, people with Alzheimer's. So it, it's a very sad disease. And 10 years ago, your lifespan was very short. 
um, you know, you could have very positive views and say, we're going to make it, we're going to do this together as a team between the patient and the doctor. Um, your family could be encouraging and, you know, not know how, how much this is going to impact your life and not know exactly how you're going to die from this disease. But medications have given people in this category such life and opportunity. Now, it doesn't mean that they would ever be as physically able as I am. They still have a very debilitating disease and a lifelong term disease. But it means that there is an opportunity to say there is light at the end of the tunnel. If you are able to stay consistent with a uh, specialist, not a physician, but a specialist in this arena, and you communicate effectively, and you openly talk about your medication and how it's affecting you, and how the change in dosage is affecting you, and you're a very uh, attentive person that's consistent, you will have positive outcomes. And you know, that's what I wanna talk about, is I wanna talk about the positive outcomes. Some of the negatives are the cost of the medications. Some of the negatives are the series of medications that have other side effects. But I've seen so much and I've learned so much where any, any, any inch of positive growth in medicine is going to come at a centimeter of negatives. And anytime you push something three inches, such as uh, a lifelong disease or something like HIV, that's for the rest of your life, if you try to do something good, you're gonna have, instead of a millimeter or a centimeter, you're gonna have almost an inch. So to every three inches you move, you're gonna have an inch of bad. And we may end up later in our uh, decade here, as we get into 2030, we may be able to counter a lot of those side effects. We may be able to come up with a hologram technology that completely offsets side effects with radio waves, isotopes, there will be something. But at this juncture, some opinions in pharmaceuticals need to change. Because and also, in order to be a pharmaceutical sales rep or a pharmaceutical representative or a vice president, it's a very challenging position. And not a lot of respect goes into it. When I did diagnostic clinical testing and medical devices, you had two different, two different varieties of how you're helping the clinical community. And while you're not a doctor, you are directly assisting and directly impacting. And it's, it's not the same as saying that you're supporting them in terms of positive PR, just because you don't want to diminish anybody else's role. You are literally responsible for a big portion of the outcomes in healthcare facility. Because without you, they don't have access to the pharmaceuticals and the information they need. Without you, they don't have access to the disease state that's going on, the clinical trials, the outcomes. Because physicians are dealing with their patients on a day-to-day -day basis. They are in a block schedule. Some physicians don't work seven days a week. Some don't work five days a week. So you have physicians within physicians, and then you have people below physicians that still work with patients. And all of these people have to get on the same page when it comes to their patient base. And there's a lot of diversity in opinion. There's a lot of diversity in culture and also how you're trained. You could have been trained 15, 20 years ago in medical school, and the only thing you've seen is what you currently work in. Well, you may not know anything about infectious disease. You may know a lot about infectious disease, but you don't know anything about women's health. That's a big issue with America, is that when we hear a doctor, we automatically assume that they are the know-all. No, it means that there's a, there's a specificity, there's a specific component of how they were trained and what they know, and then we corroborate that with their credentials and also their life term into the field. Uh, what they've done, negative and positive, how the hospitals have reacted to their patients coming from their clinics. So there's a lot that goes into this. But in terms of the pharmaceutical market, and we're gonna take a break here because we're going on nine minutes. In terms of the pharmaceutical market, there's also medications that cause certain blood cancers, lymphomas, 
And lymphomas, whether it's um, Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's, those are more safe. Those are more, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Those are more treatable cancers. Those are more easily recognizable cancers. Your leukemias, not so treatable. And there's so many varieties of leukemia. One in particular, it's very hard to treat, very poor outcome is multiple myeloid leukemia. Uh, it's just a very, it's a very stressful cancer to have. Uh, very hard to treat, very aggressive type of cancer to have. So you have so many different things that stem from causing a positive outcome to a negative outcome. Um, and I don't know if we can ever truly counter those. Because I'm not a PhD in biotechnology or pharmacogenomics itself, um, I don't know how a medication that you take to help one thing causes certain cancers. I know it has to do a lot with receptors. It has to do with changing genomics. It has to do with changing the profile of the patient. But in terms of actually being able to communicate an effective answer that the public would accept as public opinion, I don't have that information. And that's also why we work in unison with those types of professionals, because a PhD is going to look at a molecular and a cellular composition, but they won't be able to tell you about a specific patient. They won't be able to tell you about chronic diseases. And that's why in medicine, what we try to do is not have conflict where I'm smarter than you or I'm more educated than you. It's if somebody truly respects your experience and they respect your education or they respect the vicinity of medicine you try to work in, you're then respected to where what you say can be taken in as general consensus. And then other people will vote on it. They call it a medical panel. And, and sometimes we don't do that in the pharmaceutical world. That happens at the, the corporate level, at the high board, high executive, high tier, collateral level. And that's not what general public will ever see. Um, you'll hear, you know, certain vice presidents have been appointed to uh, general counsel of Merck or uh, Pfizer or McKesson. Generally, these people um, will have different opinions. Some will come from the business world. Some will come from a corporate environment. Some will come from the HR and PR. I call it HR PR diagnostics, where you're trying to put a positive spin on something that went sideways. Um, you're trying to make sure that you infiltrate another side of business that you haven't tapped into. Um, there's also governance. You need political alloy. Uh, you know, you need a determination of how are you going to get certain things through the FDA and the CE and the channels. Um, those are challenges that you need to face. And then you'll have your uh, medical professionals who maybe don't know so much per se about the business side because they don't engage with it in a day-to-day. Uh, but they'll tell you about what they see in their patients. We'll talk, we talk about patient profile all the time. That really matters. You know, there's a lot of physicians that only work with minority populations. And that data doesn't always get reported in the same way as a general population physician. Um, you'll also see certain diseases come up more often, more frequently in minority populations because they don't tend to see physicians as often. So people in general population will see physicians more often. They'll either have financial uh, or certain literacy that's higher than, uh, than what you would see in minority populations. Uh, you know, that's another reason why I tend to work with minority populations is, you know, these are the, the voices that are voiceless. Uh, so you wanna be able to give them representation and communicate equally about, um, you know, their, their rights and their healthcare rights. So I'm gonna take a break here, but you know, we're gonna continue on particularly about maybe some generics I can talk about in pharmaceuticals that I've seen changed. Um, I'll talk about some of the challenges you face also in healthcare that people are not a parent of. Uh, and it's all, you know, I'm not under MNDA by anybody in terms of pharmaceuticals, so I can clearly speak and freely speak on this and, and I'll do so because it's gonna benefit the public 
whoever wants to listen to this to maybe understand why prices rise or pharmaceuticals are no longer available in certain categories or why things feel pushed with a physician um, or may sometimes even why you why there's no medication available for your uh, disease. So stay tuned. So before we break into fibromyalgia, um, you know, there's there's one thing that's different about your, your career choice that uh, is very different than if you've never worked in the medical field. So if you, let's say you're, you're, you're a banker, um, great bankers generally have the right solutions. So almost always they have the perfect answer. However, there are situational basis and environment that is based on a situational bias where um, it's not probable to always have the right solution. So you use outliers, you use interior connections to be able to find the right solution for the client. In medicine, you almost have to be right all the time. Uh, those that are not are those that really don't care for the profession to the, to the degree that you should. Uh, they also could be into the weeds of what the government and bureaucracy is requesting, such as what they consider medical necessity and reporting. The clinical paperwork that sounds superficial can actually overwhelm and overabsorb a general practice um, so much that they don't have time to assess their patients properly, that they don't even have the energy to assess where they are in their current um, regimen of medicine. Things change all the time in medicine and, and these doctors work in these clinics and they don't get to have access to the trainings that we do. Um, they don't get to be on the national calls. They don't get to be on national security call teams um, or national medical teams that you know respond to the NIH that then communicate to the CDC. They will hear from pamphlets what the CDC requests of them and then those physicians will based on what they feel or merit, uh, follow the guidelines or not follow the guidelines. They don't always do what they're told to do, and that's fair. So physicians need a lot more help, and that's why you put a medical representative into a clinic. Um, that's why you put a lab into a clinic. There's a lot of physicians that try to do things themselves and they fail because they just don't have all the other years of experience that they need in order to successfully pull things off. There's a lot of physicians that try to do labs interior and they want more control. They want more control of cost. They want more control of what's getting tested and when it's coming back. And where they fail is, well, they know medical necessity, but they don't know how to deal with insurance companies. They already assess that to the front office admin. Well, that's fine if you're doing a small subset, but when you're trying to do your own lab, you don't have the employees and the trainings available to you at that level to be able to have uh, proper assessment. You also can't tell a patient why something's delayed 15 days or why you needed gene splicing um, or you needed to run things against a double negative barrier um, or why you needed to run for blood instead of breath or you know, why you're testing for trichinomas instead of bacterial vaginosis. There, there's a lot of things that happen. And then there's cost factors that shift. Um, things out of pocket could actually be more cost effective in certain scenarios than billing to insurance. And it could be the other way around as well. And then there's also how do you read a report um, that gets convoluted into, you know, some, some labs because we make things very simple for them. Um, we also have certain technology that you pay millions and millions of dollars for that they could never afford. And what that does is it creates a profile for the patient where they can understand clinical terms in a general census. So if you're trying to you know, sometimes talk to a surgeon, as a patient that you know didn't go to medical school or didn't go to any formal education within medicine, you really don't know what they're talking about, but you're just gonna nod your head and say, okay, I understand doctor. There's certain labs that can break down that profile and say, what your doctor really saying is this is what you've been identified as having and this is why it's manifesting and this is what your treatment plan 
is going to look like and here's your questions that should have an answer that's all very important stuff and when you get into things and now we're going to loop back here so we stay on basis but when, when you get into things like fibromyalgia um, what makes it so challenging is that there's not there's not a there's not a test available at least in the commercial market that just simply identifies it you know we, we there's a certain uh, immunoassay test that we can do that produces uh, up to 19 autoimmune conditions that a patient can suffer from just from a blood swab uh, and you know through that you know 0 0.350 millimeters um, of blood whether it's capillary uh, or it's intravenous you know we we can assess that profile uh, and we can find out what the patient's suffering from and, and that's a really positive thing we didn't have that even a few years ago however something like fibromyalgia and its age bracket of diagnosis uh, you know it could take 15 years for your family physician to find out that you have fibromyalgia and it doesn't carry a scary word like HIV doesn't carry a scary word like cancer doesn't carry uh, a scary word like a blood disorder um, or a blood clot because it's not imminent however fibromyalgia over time can be very uh, debilitating to the body uh, it can be very stressful to the mind because you're not sure what you're feeling is real. Uh, there's no evidence that suggests that this could be fibromyalgia. It's very hard to link. Um, and sometimes, you know, you even have um, certain degrees of inflammation that cause fluid uh, in the membrane of the spine. And, you know, your, your body just changes. Your, your ability to have physical activity changes. And yet, this diagnosis just sounds harmless. That's kind of what you deal with in chronic disease. Chronic is something that lasts more than a period of 30 days and it's something that typically recurs within the year. Um, or you see it come back and it either comes back worse or it comes back better, but it always comes back and that's what chronic typically means. So fibromyalgia isn't something that comes and goes uh, as infrequently as you would think. Uh, generally it's it's hard to treat without opiates. Um, it's hard to treat without an NSAID, something that buys down the inflammation. So patients really have limited opportunity um, to get rid of their pain and to not have another side effect in helping fibromyalgia that is something else, right? So it's important to talk about the pharmaceuticals and, and what's available and, and, and how it afflicts the body uh, because these things are very real for patients. And I haven't personally seen a physician office in probably two years. I've just been in the, the surgical arena. And then obviously because of COVID, a lot of things have been telemedicine, telecommunication, virtual basis. So in a matter of two years, so much can change. Um, you know, when we were running certain gold standard tests, new tests were coming through. And since then, ended up five years of clinical study and data to then turn to the physician and say, you know, just wanted to get your thoughts on what you think about this series of uh, new medical tests and clinical testing. Here's the data that's been pulled, uh, you know, based on your patient profile. Do you feel that this would fit? Obviously, we already know the answer, but we want to get them in affirmation and confirmation um, so that we can move forward. And the best thing about, I think, clinical testing is, is you pick and choose. You know, you're not going to choose every test uh, because it's improbable and it's going to be a factor of you know wasting money but um, you know that that all combines and before I get off the segment here uh, I think I'm gonna end it with what could be going wrong in the pharmaceutical market and we'll get into reps being paid we'll get into reps not being paid we'll get into uh, Stark laws and compliance and what that means uh, and there we go well, here would be some information that people would really like to know. Um, why has pharmaceuticals given a bad name? And when you hear, I actually value pharmaceutical reps, um, at least those that work in disease state. I don't value those that work in generic prescription. 
uh, because you're just reading information off that is now accessible to those physicians, but um, that's here nor there. Collectively, every pharmaceutical medical rep has to adhere to star compliance. So star compliance says, listen, in the past, there's been a lot of closed window opportunities, closed door conversations where Doctor, if you try this out, we will give you X, Y, and Z. You know, physicians, you have to remember, are not compensated for their affiliations to new medications or clinical testing. Clinical trials are very different, and physicians are compensated greatly on that because you are introducing new data, a new profile, into something that needs a purview of a clinical trial. That is very, very different than going to a doctor and saying, try out this new diabetic medication and let me know your thoughts. The FDA process is a lot more strenuous now than it was uh, when I first entered. The cost of bringing uh, a medication to market is like 20x higher than when I was in school uh, before I was even in business school, just in, just in you know academia, academia itself in, in, in the university level, um, it was like two million or three million dollars to bring a pharmaceutical to market. Now it's uh, not your average, but some of them I've seen around a billion dollars. Uh, there's a lot of things that have shifted, um, and I think even by the time I read that profile and it was like 11 months later, I think the average cost to market went from like three million to 300 million. Um, I'm not sure if I don't have the experience or the expertise and why that shifted so much. I'm just going to tell you those costs had to be, um, you know, built into the drug itself and the long-term business projections. So <coughs> you have to first recognize that those who are hired in the pharmaceutical or medical market are, um, some of the hardest jobs in America to get. Uh, the competition is elite. It's not hard, it's elite. Uh, very few people are chosen for this profession. There's a lot of barriers, a lot of things you can't have as a choice in your life to be successful or even hired in these roles. Um, there are companies that have shifted and will hire you right out of college. That never used to be a thing. Uh, there are companies that will hire you if you were an athlete because you have a certain profile of being assertive, of being held accountable to a schedule, uh, of being competitive. And when you're in a losing situation with physician offices, it helps to not be emotional, but to think through strategy and purpose, which is what an athlete's very good at doing. And then there's those that are highly clinical trained that they need when you have physicians that say, listen, I'm tired of talking to somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about. I need to talk to somebody that is tenured in this. And if they're not tenured, I need to know that they came from Yale or Harvard, or they came from Case Western or UNC. I need to know that these are people I can trust in. So you have all different types of people you can run into. So Star Compliance is saying, the government is going to designate that for each MPI number that is assessed in a clinic, an MPI number is how you identify a physician by their license. Uh, all of their and fragments, all the times that they've screwed up on a patient or a patient was seen and ended up at a hospital, that gets put on their record. And then that record has a point level and then that carries sometimes into compensation, sometimes it carries into infractions on a license but let's not get into the weeds here. So an MPI number is designated to your DOs, your MDs, um, now your physician assistants, uh, because they went to a school of medicine uh, and it's, you know, they're generally considered almost a physician. So, you know, your nurses don't have an MPI number. Uh, they didn't go to a school of medicine. You know, they went to a, a two-year program or a university program transfer etc etc so very different there um, in saying that an MPI number gets assigned a certain allocation per year that says 
you can only take X amount of dollars per MPI number. And after that rep utilizes all of those funds, and it's paid by, our, by the company, not the physician office, but the company, then you can no longer associate with that practice and that type of uh, communication style. So what would have to happen? Well, backdoor conversations used to be in the pharmaceutical market um, that were negative is, hey, doctor, I just wanted you to, uh, you know, try out these medications. Um, you know, let us know what you think. Doctor would say, hey, great, listen, why don't we set up a lunch? I hate when they would say that, but let's set up a lunch and, uh, you know, discuss this. And they would already be busy. They would already be thinking about their patients and the first patient they're going to see for the day uh, or return to. So you wouldn't really get the decision maker available. Physicians generally aren't the decision makers. Uh, it's generally your office managers, your practice directors. If you're in hospitals, it's C-suite. But the physicians have an integral role of approval because you never want to feel like you're disrespecting the profession that they have chosen and, and worked hard to, to be attested to. So if you communicate to the physician that, listen, uh, you know, Susan has agreed that we're going to bring this series of medications or this series of testing into the office. I just, out of respect, wanted to gauge your opinion on this. They have a more appreciation for that than you trying to sidebar them and say, uh, hey, Dr. Smoltz, you know, I just wanted to know, how are you reacting with these new tests? Are you finding it easy to talk about with the patients? Are you finding challenges? What are your thoughts? And the physician's going to say, like, listen, asshole, I never got talked to about this. I was just told this is what we're going to do now. And yeah, that'll be a conversation. If you don't know how to manage a physician, uh, that'll be a conversation you'll have with them and you're going to be in the wrong. So those conversations used to happen because on the other side of it, the business is paying these reps salary, a combination of salary and a combination of commissions, higher on the salary in the pharmaceutical market, higher on the commissions in the medical device market. But the company is putting out millions and millions of dollars to ensure that these reps are out there and they're not only representing the business in the right manner and under the right judicial practices, but they're representing the output because the money automatically goes out. So the company has to eat that as overhead, but they don't know what the output's gonna be unless they put certain parameters around what's required. So you had reps that got very stressed and what used to be, uh, you know, go see four clinics a day, which is still a challenge to do because, you know, like I said, you can't just go walk into a clinic and get access. That's, that's not the way it works anymore. Um, there's a lot of barriers and it's not always your relationships. There's a lot of legal barriers now. There's a lot of barriers in time because of that medical necessity changing. So the point of this is that there used to be backdoor conversations that gave pharmaceutical market a bad name, a bad rep, because they didn't have a choice but to go see seven clinics a day. And if you're seeing seven clinics a day, you don't have time to have a medical panel. You don't have time to assess a patient profile and sit down one-on-one -on -one or one-on-three or, you know, in, in, in my case, you know, we would speak to 80 cardiologists in one group. You know how hard it is to get 80 cardiologists together, let alone 30 of them? At the same time, some of them work Tuesday, Thursday, some of them work Fridays only, some of them work Mondays and Fridays, some of them refuse to even come in on a Thursday. And some of them are out of, out of the country because they, they have people and their families that live in different countries and they're physicians, so they'll go away for a month. Well, that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. So it might take you three months to get that group together. So going to see seven clinics a day just wasn't probable anymore. It wasn't even possible. So what you would do is you'd pay the salary out. And before you pay the salary, you have to recognize that, like I said, going back to the elite of medicine, you have to know so much. You have to know how to talk to a nurse versus how to talk to a physician versus how to talk to a front office admin versus how to talk to a, an office manager versus how to talk to a DO or a specialist. You have to understand their schedules. Um, you have to understand their culture and how they view you have to know what questions to ask. You have to know the clinical depth of things. There's things you don't know that you have to know. 
that you don't know that you have to know. And then you have to be able to manage all of those relationships in a business profile, a CRM. Very, very hard to do. And before you do that, you have to get clinically trained and business trained by that company based on their paradigm. So if you're working for a Fortune 500, they're not going to be okay with you just being a good person and having some subset of knowledge. They're going to train you for like five months. And if you burn out a rep, you not only lose the salary that you just paid, yeah, you're getting some output, but for the most part, you have to now take another six months to train somebody else. And like I said, it's very hard to get these types of people um, because the corporate world is swallowing them up. You know, Apple is making these people their junior vice president. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of strengths to getting challenged at that level and, and, and doing productions at that level. Um, so once again, not getting back into the weeds here, but the pharmaceutical market changes because the business changes, because tolerance changes. Stark laws keep you in compliance, but it also makes it very challenging. You know, you no longer do lunches, you do breakfast. Why? Because you don't want to pay $220 a clinic. It's smarter, more business conscious to do breakfast for 50 bucks. You eat up less of that Stark compliance. You also ensure that every meeting you have is noted and organized. Uh, that was another thing that pissed me off in the Fortune 500 world is, although I had a team and they were great people, not saying anything negative there, but they didn't handle my day-to-day. I had to be assessed in a clinical and a business sense and for all of the reporting. So if you had you know, a 35-physician practice and you didn't get their MPI numbers all in that one day, you had to go backtrack. You had to go spend about two hours trying to get that information from Google, making sure that that's the right doctor. And do you know how many Dr. Roberts there are? Dr. Thompson's there are in the U.S., in your state? It could take forever. And they require this. So you have to have all of their names, every signature. Some doctors don't want to put their name on a damn sign-in sheet. They're like, hey, listen, I'm here. My, my company knows I'm here. Let's just start. So you don't control the parameters inside an office like you think you would. That makes compliance a lot harder. That's another reason to want to sit on a board for Merck. Because I'd love to hear what's truly going on in the pharmaceutical market from the top down to be able to provide experience and executive experience, not just clinical, but executive experience into what I've seen uh, you know, over the past damn decade, how it's changed and, and how we can help the businesses thrive. Because that's number one. Number two is how we help the patients. You know, you, you, you would, it used to be when you were um, not trained as well. How do you help the patients first? And then how do you help the business? Well, here's the thing. You can't help patients if you don't have a business. So if all of a sudden one of these big pharmaceutical companies collapses, you're, you're killing a lot of patients and you don't realize it. You think you're helping, but you're not. Um, if a company like McKesson goes away, who do you think is spinning your fusion cycles and creating chemotherapy agents? Who do you think is fostering um, genomic profiles for breast cancer? and for prostate cancer for men in their early 30s, late 40s. You have to think about these things. And I don't blame the public for not knowing about this, but that's the reason I guess to do these podcasts is maybe provide a little mental awareness. Um, and, and I'd say before we leave here, the hardest challenge in medicine is you almost have to be right all the time. Well, if you surround yourself with people that are know-it-alls, um, those aren't fun people. You know, it, it's not fun to have to listen to other people's opinions and know that you have the right answer. You know, that never used to be my reality. A lot of it was learning. Now that you know things and you know most of your subjects, it, it's not a confidence thing. It's more of a saturation. You, you, feel, you feel bad that when people like on Facebook uh, would challenge me and say, yeah, but I read this article. It's really hard to say, but you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know that source. I directly speak with these organizations. 
I have the literal experience in the field to tell you what's true and what's not true. And because you're not a doctor, they don't accept it. Well, are you going to argue with those people, the people you're trying to help? It's a losing battle. And even physicians get challenged by patients. Oh, my doctor doesn't know what they're talking about. They're just out for the money. Listen, doctors should be paid like athletes because going to medical school is a regiment in itself. There's not many other professions out there where you have to sacrifice 10 to 12 years of your life, of your actual and literal life, where you can't earn. And you don't even know if you can finish. Even if you finish medical school, great. You still have to take your state exams. Well, what if you're not a good test taker? Do you know how many brilliant people are not great test takers? Well, yeah, we'll never be doctors. That's a sad truth. Even, even myself, uh, I recently completed a uh, clinical program for Harvard School of Medicine. I wasn't going to be able to do that at 23. You know, I was in a business school, um, or out of a business school at 23, and into a world that I didn't know. I wasn't ready for Harvard. I wasn't ready to compete at those levels. I wasn't ready for that intellectual depth that's required in an assertion of what, what do you know? What is your true analysis? How do you look at an ad hoc argument? When you get to that next level, you'll realize how brilliant some people truly are. And a lot of them wanted to become doctors or lawyers, and they just couldn't. So, you know, I guess open up your mind to maybe more than what you think you know. And... Just know if we're challenging you, it's because we're just trying to help. If things in medicine were so simple and so easy, and so easy to be understood from an article that was written by somebody you don't even know, by a source you don't understand, well, then I guess we wouldn't have death in medicine, would we? And, yeah, we're always going to have death in medicine, but we're trying to move towards the position of uh, save as many lives as you can. And that exists in our company, too. So, God bless to you all. Uh, as long as people appreciate these segments, I'll continue to post it. Um, and yeah, we're just we're here to help.